Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. I'm Jamie Page, managing partner for Europe and Africa Industrial Practice. And every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Now we're sharing our conversations with you in this brand new leadership podcast. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. In today's podcast, Dubai to Abu Dhabi in 12 minutes, I'm speaking to Nick Earle, Senior Vice President of Hyperloop One, a system described by Elon Musk as a cross between Concorde, a railgun, and an air hockey table. Prior to Hyperloop One, Nick was SVP for all cloud go-to-market activities at Cisco, running their worldwide $11 billion sales business unit. He is voted number two in CRN's list of 25 most disruptive channel execs in IT globally, and he's also recognized as one of the top four global cloud executives as accredited by CIO Dive. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Maybe as a starter, you could give us a 60-second potted history of Hyperloop One and your version and view of things. Yeah, I guess the story all started in 2013 when Elon Musk was stuck in a traffic jam, being very frustrated at two things. One is seeing airplanes going over the top of his head faster than he was moving. And secondly, with the recently announced California high-speed rail project that was going to cost tens and tens of billions of dollars and actually wasn't going to make it into the cities. Uh, he still have to travel to it. And he felt that there had to be a better way. He came to the conclusion, famously, that actually if you look at rail technology in particular, it really hasn't changed that much. It was, I think it was about 1823 when it was rail was invented um, here in the UK. Since then, we've had incremental improvements on technology, but Basically, George Stevenson would recognize Waterloo Station if he saw it today. So he famously wrote a white paper. He postulated that the Hyperloop would be possible. And the company that I work for, Hyperloop One, was the first company to be formed. We've raised $160 million so far. Uh, We're the only company building the technology. And we're getting very, very close to proving Elon's idea in the next couple of months that a Hyperloop is indeed possible. And how would you describe Elon's vision? What is it that he looks to Hyperloop to achieve? Yeah, I think to answer that question, you've really got to answer the question, you know, what are you talking about here? What is a Hyperloop? So essentially, if you think about it, you know, we all know airplanes. You've got an airplane stationary, it accelerates, it goes high in the sky, it goes about 600 miles an hour, it decelerates, it comes down, and it stops. Everybody knows that. You ask yourself the question, why does it go high in the sky? It goes high in the sky in order to get low air pressure so there's not much resistance. One of the key ideas was what if you, instead of doing that, brought the air pressure down to the ground by actually putting a a partial vacuum in a tube, which is what we do. We will run this at a a pressure equal to 160,000 feet over the ground, uh, above above the Earth's surface, so very little resistance. The second big idea is to borrow from the Internet, which is that we've learned over the last 20, 30 years, and certainly I have in my career at Cisco, which you mentioned, that packetized information in the form of broadband is is totally revolutionary. All the packets go direct to destination. Whereas a train is not packetized, a train is carriages connected together. It only leaves when everyone's on board and it stops at every destination. So high-speed rail isn't high-speed rail every time it stops. So the second big idea was not only make it go fast, but what if it was packetized? So a packet could be uh, a thing, a person, It could be some freight, it could be a car, where every journey was direct to destination. 
and uh, it could be done at a price point much, much lower than any of today's transportation solutions and, of course, a much greater experience for the consumer um, or the person moving the freight. And this concept of selling time, which I love, this is presumably more than just creating a transportation system. This is about achieving totally different outcomes. It is. I mean, I, I go back to the broadband analogy. When when broadband first came out, and you know, I was involved in that from a career point of view, people said, oh, it's great, I can download a web page quicker, or I can um, download a film quicker. Actually, what broadband has now done, and Wi-Fi, and 4G, soon to be 5G, is it's disrupted business processes. It's enabled mass disruption of content. For example, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, all the stories we we all know. So moving things really, really quickly in a different model causes huge disruption of established business processes. So for example, um, if you could go from Abu Dhabi to Dubai in 12 minutes or London to Manchester in 14 minutes, then it totally changes where you can live and where you can work. With Hyperloop as a technology, 30 minutes is about 250 miles. The ability to take the convenience of the tube uh, and drop it on the whole of the UK, so you could live in Leeds and get to Canary Wharf as if you were taking the Jubilee line, a few stops, that is truly transformational and will change society, how we build cities, and ultimately everybody's lives. Now, I'm interested in this concept of disruption. And you know, Working in a start now a startup and an innovative corporate, what are the lessons, what are the things that you've taken away that you would suggest to other firms that might help them in that disruptive case for their own businesses? Well, disruption clearly is, is, is very difficult, um, especially for an incumbent. And as you said in your intro, I guess I've I've spent quite a few years being quite disruptive in the uh, IT industry. I would say the lessons of disruption are, first of all, that the most important thing to identify with disruption is, is an inefficient process and customer dissatisfaction, because ultimately somebody will come along with something that's better. And the main reason that incumbents uh, get disrupted is because they actually are looking at their, in my view, their balance sheet and their P&L, which where they collect a lot of money from the install base, and they're not looking at the the small, tiny little business that's doing things 10 times better. Great example being Kodak invented the digital camera. Kodak were killed by the digital camera. So even if you have it yourself, disruption is inherently invisible. The second thing that, that you need, I guess, is a, a, a can-do attitude and a, a willingness to as some people say, you know, eat your own children, i.e. kill your mainline business. That's extremely difficult inside a large company. But if you're on the outside with a new idea, an unproven idea to be fair, but new that has the potential to be just totally, just totally different. You know, Elon Musk, he used his quote, when you hear about Hyperloop, it's either completely impossible or blindingly obvious. But if you're in the blindingly obvious camp and you can prove it, then actually it's all about assembling a group of people who can make things happen really quickly. We're two and a half years old, and um, we are within just a few weeks away of running the world's first Hyperloop. And that's an interesting point. I mean, how does an organization that is designing and delivering something that's never been done before measure if it's actually performing well? It's very difficult because there are no metrics. Um, Having spent... Um, over 30 years in business uh, in a mixture of large corporates and startups. I've sort of flip-flopped between the two of them. 
the standard metrics between the two are completely different. It's all about speed internally and um, creating things and testing them, tearing them down, rebuilding them, testing them again. In software terms, this is a very familiar technique of how software is uh, now created um, in totally new ways. You don't build it and then test. You, you build, test, build, test, build, test. So you release software versions maybe every half an hour uh, in the cloud world. The ability to do that in engineering is very, very difficult. If I give you one example from Hyperloop, we did a, a test of our motor technology, which is a pretty famous video. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have watched it. It had about 35 billion media impressions in May when we released it, where we, we, we showed our new linear motor and it slammed into some sand in Nevada and all the sand went up. Um, that was version one of the motor. Uh, today, we're on version seven of the motor. So you really need a can-do attitude. So a lot of our engineers came from SpaceX. Um, the, a lot of the team that designed the rocket that went up and landed vertically, the Falcon 7, a lot of those people work for us now. Our CFO was the CFO of Uber, raised $4 billion. Our chairman who started the company was on the board of Uber, an early investor in Airbnb. So I think the the sort of can-do attitude, the, men the mentality and the belief that it may look impossible, but it someone's got to do it for the first time, and why shouldn't it be us, is what drives the company. But it, it is a wild ride, uh, I have to say. It's not your average corporate company. And from a leadership perspective, to in order to get engineers who are renowned for linear thinking, albeit fantastically creative thinking, to create a culture where you feel comfortable and it's normal to behave as you've just described it, what does that look like from a leadership perspective? Yeah, I actually would push back on the first statement that you said is that the last thing we want is engineers that are used to linear thinking. Um, you know, they didn't create a rocket that landed vertically by linear thinking. Um, linear thinking in, in rail, and we're not a train, we're totally new, but um, linear thinking gets you incremental improvements on your current product. I think that the sort of what you're referring to is the is the hiring process in particular. Uh, we interview many, many, many more people than we hire. And one of the uh, things that we're looking for is people who, and it sounds trite, but people who really want to change the world. I'll tell you a story. When I first went out to the uh, test track in uh, Vegas where we built this uh, for world's first Hyperloop, I met a lady there who was, um, you know, 25 years old, graduate of, uh, I think it was Princeton. I asked her what she was doing, and she said, oh, I've built these um, new uh, cabinets that control the electricity feed to the Hyperloop. It's, it's a very complex uh, way of pulsing electricity uh, into the track in order to get what's called passive magnetic levitation. It's a new technology for levitation that has never been done before. And I said to her, oh, what, what equipment are you using? And she said oh, there's nothing existing like this. We couldn't buy any components, so I designed one and built it myself. Well, that's a pretty cool thing to do, an engineer in your mid-twenties, to create a core piece of technology for a new form of transportation. I, I don't know what other companies are, are, are like, but I can tell you that Hyperloop One has about 150 of those people, and it's quite humbling, actually. Um, you know, our CTO was 28 when he left SpaceX after completing the rocket project. That's pretty humbling. It's extraordinary. 
looking at your experiences within the Hyperloop and, and taking that and looking at it in the broader context of the industrial world, what are your views on the changes and the unprecedented rate of change that we're seeing more broadly in industrial landscape and how technology is helping to impact that future? So a lot of people, when they think about Hyperloop as a technology and we're Hyperloop One, the company, I think they, they get distracted by the headline of speed. Uh, I actually think that although speed is a, uh, a factor, it's a bit like me saying that how fast the uh, pistons go up and down in my car versus your car. It's, it's interesting. It has benefits, but it's not the transformational component. So let's use a business process like manufacturing. So today we know you can do printing on demand and you can uh, order things on the web. What if you could deliver, and I'm going to take North America as an example, what if you could deliver same day coast to coast? Um, how would that transform manufacturing? If you take publicly available data from Amazon, Amazon.com, who of course have Amazon Prime with a two-hour SLA, Amazon are in the process of buying airplanes to have their own f fleet. In a world where Hyperloop existed just between, say, 12 cities in the US, where the main um, clusters of population are, then you could deliver same day, actually you could deliver within three or four hours, but anyway, same day, anything, uh, including shipping container size things. That is going to totally transform manufacturing, it's going to transform supply chain, it's going to transform the companies in the supply chain business, the logistics companies, track and trace, and actually those um, countries that, that take advantage of that will leapfrog from a competitive point of view. By the way, it, it also takes tens of thousands of lorries, or trucks as they call them in the US, off the roads, which has massive implications for journey times, uh, less uh, carbon emissions, etc., etc. So, So I think manufacturing and supply chain is one of the really big things that, that people will think about. Nick, Give me an idea within Hyperloop, but also more broadly within your career as a whole, what have been some of the bigger hurdles to prevent the success of the mission that you were on? So I would say, personally, one of the things um, I've learned, and frankly learned the hard way, is to not get too far ahead of your skis. Um, when you're working in, in a disruptive area, it is easy to get ahead of your team. And so what I personally learned is that I had to always hire people who were operationally much stronger than me in order to translate what I was saying and what I was pushing the organization to do into processes that could be implemented internally. And um, I found that sometimes I would, I would be so enthused about leading the parade and, and flying the flag that sometimes I'd turn around and they were quite far behind me. And I've met other people who've said that. So one of the things is almost hire the opposite of yourself. Surround yourself with people who are much better at the things that you're not good at, which implies you need to know what you're not good at. So that was the first one. On the second one, from a corporate perspective, Hyperloop 1 and Hyperloop in general, the big idea here is, is transportation ripe for transformation there's a lot of evidence that would say that's the case i don't know what your 
journey was like here today, Jamie, but mine wasn't the greatest in the world. And it, no, I can empathize with that. Yeah, everybody can empathize with that. But at the end of the day, infrastructure projects are big, they're complicated, and you need regulatory approval. So one of the things we need to not get in front of our skis about on this project is that all technology before it's implemented, particularly in transportation, needs regulatory approval. So part of my team's role is working with the regulators to create the regulations for a new mode of transportation. People say, oh, you've got a project in Dubai. Actually, the project is with the regulator in Dubai who want to be the world's first regulator to create the regulations for a Hyperloop. So I think one of the really big challenges is to not let the technology get in the way of the practicality that at the end of the day it is transport infrastructure, although it's new, it needs regulatory approval, you have to go through the safety cases and you've got to put that hard work in and it doesn't matter how good the technology is, you've got to pass those tests before you can go to implementation. Our goal is that we would hope that four years from now, 2021, we could have emerged through that process. Now, from your own perspective, there will have been many lessons throughout your career on how best to incubate and support innovation, some of which you've touched on and things you've learned at Hyperloop One. But if I could force your hand, what's the one that stands out for you, the one lesson above all that helps with that process of incubating and innovation? People. Um, at the end of the day, you can have a great idea and uh, a great belief uh, that something's possible, but if you hire people who don't feel it in their stomach, but they conceptually get it, but they they don't feel it in their stomach, it won't happen. So actually when I interview people, if if they question in any way, well, maybe what about the risk? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're working for a startup, it is risky. It's It's not the same as a big corporate job. You don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the same remuneration in the short term. But people who just truly believe that anything's possible tend to get stuff done. Um, when I was doing the uh, running the internet for HP globally, for Carly Fiorina, when she was CEO, we created an internet incubator where we wanted people who just were so frustrated with the old HP that they uh, they wanted to leave in order to get stuff done. And we said to them, you're perfect for the incubator. The cloud unit at Cisco was a bunch of people who really wanted Cisco to become a cloud company. So the lesson that I've learned is get a group of people who share the same beliefs, who want to change the world or change the environment that they're in, give them a vision, give them the tools to do the job, give them some space and get out of the way. Nick, that's been very, very insightful very challenging. It's a fantastic project. I wish you all the best for the test in two months' time. I'm sure it will be an unmitigated success. And we look forward to keeping in contact and hopefully speaking to you about the successes in the future. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.